You're listening to an audio message from Harvest Bible Chapel in Granger, Indiana. For more information, visit our website at harvestgranger.org. Let me invite you to open your Bibles to two different places tonight. First of all, find Psalm 2 and put a bookmark or your husband's finger there. And then turn back to 1 Peter chapter 2. And uh, through this series, we've been taking... Uh, our outline for the series from a particular passage there in 1 Peter chapter 2 that describes for us the identity of those that we call kingdom citizens. We're learning that we are citizens of two different countries. We're American citizens, but we are citizens of a holy kingdom with a holy king. And as dual citizens, we have dual responsibilities. We're born into America and we become citizens. We're reborn into this kingdom citizenship. And so we have this dual citizenship going on. But we recognize that while we're here on this earth, this is not our home. And we are living for a better homeland. So uh, as we get started tonight, let's just read this description of these kingdom citizens from 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 9. It says, But you are a chosen race. Last week, we talked about how we are a chosen race as Christians, redeemed by God from all the peoples of the earth, from all tribes and tongues and nations. We're a chosen race that view all other races through the lens of Scripture. So we talked about that last week. Now tonight, we're going to look at the next two descriptions descriptions of these kingdom citizens. And it says this, again, in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. You're a chosen race, you are a royal priesthood, and a holy nation. So we're going to unpack those two descriptors tonight. Did you know that you are a priest? How many of you, that's news to you? I don't see anybody here wearing the little collar or a big hat or swinging any smoke in church tonight. So what does it mean to be a priest? Well, that may be news to you. We're going to find out what it means to live as a priest in an unholy nation because not only are you a royal priesthood, you are a holy nation. Did you know that you are holy? Some of you men have been trying to convince your wives of that for years, and she's yet to be convinced. But this says you, as a citizen of heaven, a citizen of this kingdom, are a royal priesthood and a holy nation. And those two terms are tied together in several different places in the Scripture. Just by way of introduction, let me show you this Old Testament Scripture that is very much parallel to what we just read. In Exodus chapter 19, verses 5 and 6, God says this, If you, speaking to the nation of Israel, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me, notice, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. That's why we're grouping them together tonight. They're inseparable throughout the scripture. Now, he was talking to a literal nation, the nation of Israel, which he had chosen among all the nations of the earth. God had established that nation by covenant. He had given them 
his law. They were to be governed by this law. He established a theocracy. It was the only theocracy God ever established. God himself was king. Sometimes people, when uh, they make accusations against Christians that are trying to involve themselves in leadership or in political elections, they say, well, you're trying to establish a theocracy. No, as Christians, we understand America is not a theocracy. There was only one theocracy. It had a king. His name was Jesus. And we read that he established this nation, Israel, through a holy covenant, and he wanted it to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. But as we read through our Old Testament Bibles, we understand that that was a corrupt nation and there were evil kings and finally because of their disobedience, their idolatry and their morality, the whole kingdom imploded in on itself. And that was not the end because we read the promises that there is a better king coming. And we know who he is. He's King Jesus, and he is the king of this kingdom of citizens who have been redeemed and purchased by his blood. You, if you're a Christian, are a part of a kingdom of priests, and you are a holy nation. So let's talk about these two terms just by way of introduction again. In a minute, we're going to turn our Bibles back over to Psalm 2, and we're going to walk through this in just a minute. But I want you to understand what it means to be a holy nation. And understand this first of all. Um, do you recognize that we, are, we no longer have home-filled advantage in America? Do you understand that? How many of you understand when I've... How many of you ever played on a sports team, and when you went into the visiting court or the visiting field, you recognized there was... There was a lot of pressure on you. There were actually uh, two men that got together. They wrote a book called Scorecasting. And uh, one was a, an economics professor from the University of Chicago. The other one was a sports writer. And they did a scientific study to find out why is it that there is this phenomena called a home field advantage. This is what they found in their research. The home team in baseball wins 54% of the time. The home team in football wins 57% of the time. And the home team in basketball wins 60% of the time. So they found out there really is a home field advantage. Then they did some research to figure out what is going on. Could it be something to do with the players sleeping in their home bed that night? Could it be uh, getting a home-cooked meal? Uh, maybe it's just the, the, the pressure that the fans put on the team, and maybe it helps them throw a ball better or catch it better. Well, they found out that none of that was true, but they found out why there is a home field advantage. And I'm about to share it with you. Aren't you glad you came to church tonight? I mean, you find out, see, you learn something at church tonight. You know what it is? It's the refs. It's true. It is scientifically proven by the research that the refs give slight advantage to the home team. Now, it's not that the referees are immoral or unethical. They're not trying to favor the home team. It's just simply this. Like you and me, they are human. And they are influenced by momentum and emotion. Now, I used to be a referee. And I found it, I could be the most popular guy or the least popular guy in the building depending on the call that I made. Well, subconsciously, what they found out is because of the emotion and the pressure of the crowd, they found themselves making just little slight favoritism rulings 
toward the home team because the home team crowd would cheer or boo based on what they would do. I share that illustration to you because you and I need to understand something. We as Christians used to have a home field advantage. No longer do we have a home field advantage. As a matter of fact, every day you walk out into this world, you are the visiting team. And you are no longer popular. As a matter of fact, it has become something that even those who make the rules and make the rulings, just like the referees, are now ruling against those of us that declare our allegiance to a higher king as kingdom citizens. So we are a holy nation living in an increasingly unholy earthly nation. And so, how do we live this out? First of all, let's talk about this word holy here, because that's kind of spooky. What does it mean to be holy? Well, of course, we know that that exclusively, in its most intense sense, belongs to the description of God. It means that He is set apart. It means that He is other. He is not human. And He's not limited by any human characteristic. And He is entirely perfect. There is moral perfection. He is entirely righteous, and he is unstained by evil. Anything he does is right, and anything he says is right. That's what makes him holy. Now, in Scripture, we need to understand that for us, We are called a holy nation. What makes us a holy nation? You could say it in two different ways. First of all, we have a positional holiness. We are holy because God said we are. And God is holy, and whatever God says is holy is holy. That's what we would call a positional holiness. That means that we are not everything that we want to be or one day will be, but because God said it, it's true. We are, as a kingdom citizenship we are set apart from everything and everyone else and all the things that are going on in this nation we're set apart by a holy god we're separated by his designation we are called out of an unholy nation to be a holy nation that's what we mean when we say there's a positional holiness that's true no matter your behavior no matter your conduct you're holy but The Bible also talks about a practical holiness, and that has to do with your behavior. Jesus, in John chapter 17, when he prayed for us, he prayed that we would be sanctified by truth. And then he said, Father, your word is truth. And so every time we open our Bibles and every time we hear truth, that is God's way of increasingly making us holy. And when we hear the declarations of God, we change our behavior, we change our language, we change our attitudes so that our behavior can match our description of what God said, a holy people. In 1 Peter chapter 1, you could turn back to it, just the next page there, on, uh, in chapter 1 verse 15, he says this, he who called you is holy. Everybody agree with that? God is holy? He who called you is holy. Also, you must be holy. You said, oh, that's positional. No, it's practical. He says, you must be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. 
There is absolutely no room for unholy talk, unholy behavior, and unholy attitudes in a holy nation. And wherever we find it, we've got to crush it because it is inconsistent with who God called us to be. Be holy, for God is holy. And so we're a holy nation. What does it mean to be a nation? We, we think about geopolitical boundaries. Christians don't have geopolitical boundaries. What we have is distinct moral boundaries. And God wants us to stay within those moral boundaries. Listen, we are called out by a holy God. We read and study a holy Bible. We preach a holy message, the gospel. We are indwelled by the Holy Spirit, and we are commanded to live holy lives because we are a holy nation. And so it's not enough just to blend in with whatever's going on in your neighborhood or in your school or in your family. We're called out of that to be something distinctly holy. We're a holy nation. That's what we learn. Here's the first descriptor. Here's the, here's the second descriptor of this kingdom citizenship. Not only are we a holy nation, we are a royal priesthood. A royal priesthood. So let's break that down. What does it mean to be royal? What does it mean to have royalty? Well, it typically means that you have a family connection, a blood connection to a king. That's why he says, you are royalty. If you have been redeemed by Christ, Christ is a king, you are in the royal family. You're to be treated as royalty. You're members of his family by blood and by status. Here's another thing it means. You've got access to the family treasure. Whatever Jesus has, by relation, it belongs to you. You're royalty. Did you know that? Some of you are tempted to turn right now to your neighbor and say, I am royalty. Don't do that right now, okay? That, that would be not a good move for you in church, okay? But to believe that and to be indwelled by that truth, I am part of a royal family. But then what about this word priesthood? Now, in our culture, you, if you have a background in the Catholic Church, you may have had a relationship with someone who is called a priest. If you come from a Jewish background and maybe you've read the Old Testament, you understand that, that the priesthood and the office of priest is all throughout the Old Testament. And so we read our Bibles here. Now listen, when we read in 1 Peter chapter 2 that we're a royal priesthood, we need to understand some things about that. What that means is this. A priest very simply could be described as someone who represents people before God and represents God before people. A priest is someone who stands in between God who is holy and man who is unholy because there can be un, there can be no unholiness in the presence of a holy god so if you're a thinking person you should be able to think how in the world can i who is stained by sin 
I am not holy, how can I even come into the presence of the holiness of God? The answer is, you can't, and you shouldn't try. For any unholiness to come into the presence of holiness means that whatever is unholy would be incinerated. So don't try it without a priest. That's what we read in the Old Testament. In order for people to have access to God, the holy place, the holy of holies, there had to be a man who was called out by God, designated as a priest, dressed in royal attire, and he was to sanctify himself and cleanse himself. And then, only one day out of the year, he could come into the Holy of Holies and offer sacrifices for the people, representing the cleansing that was necessary for unholiness. And there, he would serve God, he would worship God, he would pray to God, representing the entire nation of the people. Not all in the nation were priests. There was only one designated tribe, the Levites, that were to act as the go-between. They were to stand in the gap between holy God and unholy people. Now, do you understand what's happening? When God calls us in the New Testament, we need to understand He's calling us to stand in the gap between the holy nation that we are the kingdom that we one day will be in fully and completely, and the unholy nation that we currently live in. We are the royal priesthood, and we're the ones that have the message of holiness. It is our job as kingdom citizens to take hold of the holiness of God with one hand, and take hold of the unholiness of this nation with the other and pull with all of our might because we have the message that can give access to unholy people to become citizens of this holy kingdom and citizens of this holy nation. You're a priest. You represent the people before God, how do you do that? In prayer, we cry out and ask God to forgive our sin and cleanse our land and heal us and bring us into His holiness once again. And then we stand before an unholy nation in your cubicle, in your schoolroom, in your factory, and you represent God before the people. That's why it's so important that you live a holy life. It's not just what you say, but they should be able to see the reflections of holiness because you are a part of a holy nation. So, we are a holy nation living in an increasingly unholy earthly nation and we are standing in the gap as a royal priesthood between holiness and unholiness. Now, it's important to understand we don't need a priest anymore to gain access to God. There are no more priests. This is where we differ from our Catholic friends. We don't need priests. We don't need priests anymore. Jesus Christ is our high priest. He once for all sacrificed his life as the Lamb of God. We sang it earlier so that we could have direct access to God and through his blood and his sacrifice, 
once for all, we have been cleansed and we can have direct access to God to boldly approach the throne of God in a way that people in the Old Testament never could. We are a holy nation and we are a royal priesthood. That's the introduction. Now, I want you to turn over to Psalm chapter 2, okay? Psalm chapter 2, because Psalm chapter 2 gives us an understanding of how we as a holy nation can live in an unholy nation. Now, I want you to notice here, it's first verse here is even kind of a description of the headlines here. Let's read it beginning in um, Psalm 2, verse 1. Why do the nations rage? Underline that word rage. Anybody ever see on the news any nations raging lately? Any, any enraged people in a nation? Well, guess what? It's not new. As a matter of fact, all unholy nations characteristically are raging out of control. Chaos and calamity all around because they have declared war on God. So here's what we're going to learn today. First of all, the nations are raging. Can I get an amen on that? The nations are raging. So how can we as a holy nation live in this raging nation? It goes on in Psalm 2 verse 1. Why do the nations rage? The people's plot in vain, and the kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. What a description of what's going on in our culture even right now. There was a time when there, were, there was a high percentage, who knows the percentage exactly, but a high percentage of people that would identify with Christ, call themselves Christians, and attempt to live a life that was governed by our holy King Jesus. And that was true in America. America was, was founded by many men who proclaimed Christ and, and had seminary degrees. 52 out of the 55 signers of the Declaration of Independence were, were born-again Christians and were unapologetic about that. And so we see all kinds of, of religious history and Christian history. You visit Washington, D.C., and you find Scripture on the monuments and on the national treasures there because the men that founded our country understood we do not want to declare war on God. But here we are 240 years later, and we've watched the progression. We've watched our country go from a, a group of people that believe the gospel to maybe a group that at least respected Christians and respected the mission of the gospel. But then time passed, and it's as if they didn't want to respect. They just kind of tolerated Christians and that's fine, you just kind of do your thing over there. But it's gone even from tolerating Christians to now hating and raging against Christians and maybe even eliminate this message of Christ, which is so divisive. And it's because the nations have declared war on God and those who are citizens of His kingdom end up bearing the brunt of their rage. So the nations are raging. What are they raging against? Here, here are four things I just kind of thought of as, as we think about. What are, they, what are they raging against? Why are they so upset? Why are they so mad? Well, they are raging against objective truth, transcendent truth, moral boundaries that were given to us 
outside of time and space by a holy God to say, if you live within these boundaries, you'll be safe. But it's as if no one wants to listen to truth anymore. And now we're living in an age where people even deny the existence of truth, and truth can be whatever you want it to be. And we even see that here in the Scripture when it says, the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel. It's as if they gather together in boardrooms or or the halls of Congress or the Oval Office and they scratch their heads and say, what do you think the rules should be? And they're rewriting the rules because they're no longer listening to objective truth. It didn't used to be that way. In 1787, the Constitutional Convention was going on there in Philadelphia and Representatives from the 13 collieries were trying to hammer out the Constitution. What would our rules be? And, and it looked as if the whole union was going to dissolve even before the Constitution was passed. In the midst of the fussing and the fighting and the raging and the arguing, a man named Benjamin Franklin interrupted the convention, and he said this, The longer I live, by the way, he was 81 at the time, the average, age, the average age of an adult male that died was 42 at the time. He was 81, and though not a believer himself, this is what he said, the longer I live, the more convincing proofs I see of this truth, that God governs in the affairs of men. And if a sparrow cannot fall to the ground without his notice, it is, it is probable that an empire can rise. It should be improbable. Is it improbable? Oh, it's a question. Is it probable that an empire, we should just record it, just, oh, I guess they didn't have one of those, so we have to these. Is it probable that an empire can rise without his aid? Answer, no. We have been assured, sir, in the sacred writings that except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it, quoting from Psalm 127. And then he said this, I therefore move that prayers imploring the assistance of heaven and its blessings on our deliberations be held in this assembly every morning before we proceed to business. Do you know what he was saying? We're not smart enough to figure this out. We need God. Well, that's the way our nation was begun. And here we are 240 years later, and the nation is raging against someone that would stand and declare that we need to pray. And so the nations are raging against objective truth, and the nations are increasingly raging against religious freedom. Right now in California, state lawmakers are considering a bill that would penalize Christian colleges and universities that quote-unquote, would deny equal rights or opportunities on the basis of gender identity, gender expression, or sexual orientation. If that law were to be passed, it would shut down or completely strip those schools of the right to teach a biblical worldview, especially on marriage and sexuality. And it would outlaw them if they did. That's the kind of environment that we're living in politically. They're raging against religious freedom, and they're raging against the exclusivity of Christ. Look at it here in the second part of verse 2. It says, they're raging against the Lord and against His anointed. The word anointed there is actually 
in the Hebrew, the word that was translated into the word Christ. It's a, it's a, it's a marker to the anointing of the king. Samuel anointed King Saul, and it was a precursor to the fact that God the Father would anoint his son Jesus to be the descendant of King David, and to be the king of this kingdom. And so they're raging against the exclusivity of Christ, and then they're, they're raging against all moral boundaries. Notice it in verse 3. Let us burst their bonds apart. Let us cast away their cords from us. They want absolute autonomy. They want absolutely no bar- barriers, no borders on their behavior, especially when it comes to sexuality. And they want no one to determine for them what is right and wrong. They want to burst those bonds and live in complete sexual freedom instead of valuing what God considers holy in marriage and in gender and for our children and for our families and for the next generation and for the nation itself. And yet... That's the raging that's going on against all kinds of moral boundaries. Here's the second thing. God is laughing while the nations are raging. Look at it here in verse 4. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king. And it's not you. Who is it? It's Jesus, the King of kings. I I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. So, yeah, the nations are raging, but do you think God is stressed out about that in any way? Uh, No, he is not. As a matter of fact, it says that, that he's laughing. It's one of the few places in the Bible that we see God laughing. There's another place in Proverbs chapter 1, verses 24 through 26, and he says this, Because I have called you, and you refuse to listen. I have stretched out my hand, and no one has heeded. Because you have ignored all my counsel, and would have none of my reproof, I also will laugh at your calamity, and I will mock when your terror comes. Now, it's not that God finds it comical, It's just that he finds it ridiculous that people would stand against him. Here's five things that make God laugh. Attitudes of superiority. Pride and arrogance and an inflated opinion of our intellect or our creativity or our ingenuity that somehow thinks we don't need God anymore. And so where you find countries that are proud and you find leaders of nations that are proud and arrogant dictators and tyrants, you will find God setting himself against them. Attitudes of superiority and assertions of power. Somehow thinking that because of our technology or our military or our economic prowess that somehow we're more powerful than God. And affirmations of autonomy. Autonomy means I don't need anybody or anything. I just need me and I just need what I have. And affirmations of autonomy are things that get a good belly laugh from God. Because as a creator, he knows how much we need him. And those that say we don't need God, 
And some of us, even in this room, we demonstrate that autonomy because we don't pray. If you go through your life prayerless, what you're basically saying is, I don't need God. And God's laughing at you because you don't recognize how much you need Him. America was born as it declared its independence from a king. America may die declaring its independence from the king of kings. We must not see ourselves as autonomous. Or accusations of indifference. Sometimes people ball up their fist in the face of God and they think, God, where were you when this tragedy happened? And God, if you loved us, you wouldn't have let this happen. And God, you must not be good or you must not be in control. Listen, God laughs at those kinds of accusations. Understanding that God is there and God does care is what sends us in prayer to Him. And God laughs at assumptions of invincibility. Somehow to think that because we're Americans and we've lasted this long, we're probably not a threat to God and there's probably not another threat out there that could take us down. And yet when we read that it is the Lord that terrifies them in His fury, God is still on His throne and God has a king that can take down any ruler or any kingdom. So, the nations are raging, God is laughing. Here's the third thing. The king is reigning. Amen? I mean, it was kind of depressing up until this point, right? I mean, come on. The king is reigning. Look at it in verse 7. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Now, wait a minute. Are we in the Old Testament here? Has Jesus yet been born? And here we are reading as a reference to the Trinity. God the Father has a son that he says will sit on a throne. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. That's one of the most quoted Old Testament verses in the New Testament. You can study that later. Verse 8 says, Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with the rod of iron, and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Sounds a little violent, doesn't it? Is Jesus violent? Sometimes he needs to be violent with me. Lest you think that this is a message about America and it's raging against God, the kingdom that you should be most concerned with and the king you should be most concerned with is the kingdom of your heart and King me that always wants to sit on the throne. Because the truth is, there is a little king inside of me that is always raging against God. It's a battle for control in the territory of my heart. There's a battleground going on constantly. And even for those of us that have surrendered to Christ and we've made Him our King until God gives us a new body and we are with Him in the kingdom every moment of the day, there is a battle for which King is going to sit on the throne. And it is impossible for King me and King Jesus to occupy the throne at the same time. The kingdom nation that lives on the inside of me battles for control 
against King Jesus that wants to bring his kingdom right here, right now. And each of these kingdoms, King Jesus and, and King Me, both of them hold out promise. King Me holds out promise of happiness if I will live outside of his boundaries. King Jesus holds out promise of happiness and security if I live inside his boundaries. The kingdom of Jesus is greater and more glorious than the kingdom of me. And that's what I have to preach to myself every day. Get off the throne, surrender, and be loyal to King Jesus. My kingdom is filled with worry, anxiety, and fear. His kingdom is filled with peace, joy, and righteousness. My kingdom must continually be crushed by his rod of iron. My kingdom must continually be dashed into pieces like a potter's vessel every day, lest I would somehow try to gain control of that throne again. And so I understand that I must make a choice every day who is going to rule and reign on the throne of my heart. Mark it down. You will either surrender to King Jesus and know him as your king, or you will be crushed by his kingdom and only know him as your judge. But the choice is up to you. Which kingdom is going to get control in your heart? The king is reigning. And here's the fourth thing. Kingdom citizens are safe. Look at verse 10. It says, now therefore, O kings, be wise. Who's he talking to? Um, he's talking to that little king on the inside of you. Uh, be wise, O king, which king you choose. Be wise, O kings. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear. Rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all those who take refuge in him so in this kingdom citizenship we're a holy nation we're a royal priesthood what did those priests do as they stood in the gap between the unholy and the holy do you know what they did they served the lord and as a royal priesthood, what are we going to do as we live among the raging nations as we wait one day for our king to come here's what we do serve the lord Quit bellyaching about how hard it is to live in this kingdom. Join the rest of the citizens of the kingdom. 95% of them that have ever existed have lived in a nation hostile toward what they believe. You don't have home field advantage anymore. So don't give up. Keep serving the Lord. Don't let any resistance or hostility keep you from loving Him and serving Him and proclaiming Him. Do it with humility and sincerity and unashamed passion in light of the fact that He has been a servant to you. Our high priest serves us and ultimately served us on the cross when He offered Himself as the sacrifice to atone for sin. So what are you waiting for? What's your excuse? Serve the Lord. What area of kingdom responsibility did you carry this week? How did you represent him to those 
that have not yet known His holiness. And then this, it says, rejoice with trembling. Only in a kingdom citizen would you ever find those two words existing at the same time. Rejoicing and trembling. We don't bury our head in the sound. We're not Pollyannas that think it's not hard and, and that there's dangers and threats out there. But we rejoice because we are living for the day when the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our Lord. I was trying to think of, of a time that I'd actually seen somebody rejoice with trembling. And I actually saw it many times this week as I watched the Olympics. Have you seen any of those Olympic athletes that expend every ounce of energy? They've trained for this for three years. They finally get to the race and they win the gold medal and they fall exhausted, trembling. And yet they rejoice that they've won gold. That's our attitude. We are victorious, and yet we are exhausted. We're victorious, and yet sometimes there's some things that make us a little afraid. But we rejoice with trembling. And then he says this. It says, kiss the Son. Love the Son. His name is Jesus, the Son of God. Love Him with an unashamed adoration. I went to a wedding this past week, and one of my friends got married, and there was always the climactic moment, right? Where the one officiating the wedding says, you may now kiss the bride. And up until that moment, it's always kind of formal, and you got to get dressed, and you got to wear a tie, and you got to be, you have to whisper. You know, it's because it's a formal moment. But when the kiss is planted, what happens? Everybody cheers, everybody relaxes and says, I affirm this. And you know what? The bride and the groom just start slobbering all over in front of everybody. They are unaware that anybody else is in the room. Why? Because there is a love relationship that has been building and it has finally culminated in this moment when they declare their covenant love to one another. What are we to do while the nations rage? We're to be kissing the sun. Not in a romantic, sloppy kiss, but in an affirmation of the covenant love he's demonstrated toward us and us back to him. Love the sun. And then finally this, take refuge in him. Here's the good news. Blessed is, are all who take refuge in him. You can live safe as a kingdom citizen in an unholy nation, as a royal priesthood, because anytime you want to, you can go boldly and directly to access the Holy of Holies, the throne room of God, to ask boldly whatever you need. Take refuge in Him. The truth of the matter is you're going to take refuge somewhere because as this nation becomes more unholy and things spin more out of control, you're going to run somewhere for refuge. You've got to choose. Are you going to run to the treasures of this earth you're going to run to the next presidential candidate that maybe can pass a few laws that might be a little favorable to us. You're going to go to mom and dad. You're going you're to trust in your IRA. Is that where you're going to find security and refuge? 
you have to choose who's going to sit on the throne and who your refuge will be. I've asked Brooke to sing a song over us, and it's a prayer. I just want you to remain seated, and I want you to, to lean in and see if the words of this song really reflect the attitude of your heart. Are you a kingdom citizen? Have you made the choice? What would you rather have, the security of this world or the security that's offered in King Jesus?